morning and afternoon folks. Um, I have the great privilege of having a very special guest, Janice Selby from Divorcing Religion with us today. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about being a disobedient woman and I'd like to ask Janet to tell us what makes her disobedient. Mm, well, I'll give you a little close up right now. You can see my eyelashes that I got. Those are pretty disobedient. <laughs> got my lipstick, got my fancy nails. Oh, look at these earrings. Oh my goodness. Those are gorgeous. I well, love yeah. them. Yeah, they're from my daughter. She loves to give gifts. That's her love language. So uh, yeah, I oh, that is compared fantastic. to the life that I lived for a while when I was very fundamentalist um, Christian with a Mennonite kind of flavor going on there. Um, you know, back in those days, uh, there was no makeup, no jewelry. The head was always covered. The hair was covered, I should say. Um, uh, long skirts and dresses only. So yeah, I've I'm quite disobedient now from that standpoint. And also because I'm a female entrepreneur, I run my own Ooh. business. I'm a therapist. I'm a religious recovery consultant. And I run uh, very large conferences online telling people about religious trauma. So I'm really using my voice, which was silenced for a lot of years. Congratulations on using your voice. That's pretty powerful. And then, like, I'd like to point out the sign behind you. Um, would that be considered obedient? Uh, compared to the Christian, very oppressive views that I was raised with, especially um, where women are concerned, very disobedient sign going on there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Take that. <laughs> so how, how do you feel about your life now versus then? It's It's been a long road. When I first um, lost my faith, and I did lose it. I wasn't expecting to lose it. I was very devout and quite like happy for the most part, content in that life. I felt really safe with all those rules and regulations. Uh, and but to get to the point I'm at now, there was so much pain and hardship and confusion and having to rebuild my identity, a secular identity. And now I just love my life. I have, I can't imagine a better life. I love the life that I have. I'm, I'm helping people. I'm growing personally. My children have managed to extricate themselves from religion. My, their dad, my, my ex-husband, um, who was a pastor, he has also left the faith. And we are, even though we're divorced, we remain very close friends. So we're still a, a tight family unit. And I'm really lucky because I know a lot of people don't have that situation. So I like the life that I have now. I wouldn't trade it. That's amazing. And what a powerful <laughs> story. Like just to, um, you know, go from being a devout um, submissive. Were you supposed to be submissive as well? Yeah, that's why I started wearing, um, that's why I started wearing a head covering. Because originally we were just uh, Pentecostal. There were no head coverings going on there. And then, but I married a fellow who was, he's quite quiet, like really a chill kind of person. And uh, the marriage was hard. We had a lot of um, just issues in there. And eventually I was thinking, well, it must be me. I am not submissive enough. I'm not submissive by nature. I'm, you know, pretty much tell you what I think. Um, well. so, <laughs> I mean, do I hear an amen? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Let's all say amen to I'm not a submissive woman. That doesn't, that title just never was me. Yes, it was never you. It was I never who so you are. I tried so hard to make it fit and it, and it just didn't work. And I, and so I put on, I veiled myself as I called it. I became the Lord's veiled handmaiden and I covered, uh, and that covering to me was to be an outward reminder that I was to be submissive to my husband. And you know what? He didn't even like it. He didn't, that's <laughs> who he married. He, he said he married me because I was feisty. And then I'll be like, oh, I'm not, not going to say anything. Like, and it was so hard. I mean, I bit my tongue to a bloody nub some days just trying to be submissive. Uh, and so 
I stayed in that pattern for a number of years because I really did with my religious teachings, I thought the troubles in our marriage were only my fault. And so I had to try and get a rein on myself to, um, if I was going to fix those. And you know what, guess what? It didn't work. So we stayed married for almost 20 years and then we, um, divorced probably about maybe six years ago. Mm -hmm. And we have a much better relationship now. It's so much easier just to be friends uh, with one another and not have those expectations and obligations and demands that come along with marriage. So everything worked out great for me. Do you think that religion kind of like the religious beliefs kind of placed um, a certain expectation on you for marriage? Like when I say marriage, what did you, what did you think back then versus like now? Like, are there two vastly different expectations that you would have if you were to be remarried or even in a relationship? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And part of it has to do with family of origin. So the family I was raised in, which was a Pentecostal family, but also my dad uh, is a diagnosed um, narcissist. So very difficult. And then you bring religious fundamentalism into that. And narcissists love fundamentalism because then they get to be in charge, calling the shots, doling out the punishments, whatever. So I grew up watching my mom bend over backwards, just living the life of a martyr, constantly trying to be a buffer between my dad and us kids to protect us. Um, And so that was my idea of um, marriage. And so my dad was emotionally unavailable because he was a narcissist. And then I married a fellow who was emotionally uh, unavailable for other reasons. So I was repeating that dynamic. Um, And to me, yeah, a woman's place was to always be just pleasing uh, her husband and uh, trying to keep the house like feeling good, feeling nice and loving and those things, even when at times inside, I just felt like I was dying. I just felt like I cannot do this anymore. Well, now I am uh, in a in a relationship with a new partner. uh, And it is completely different. He it's just so it's such an equal partnership. And we both know what's on the table at any given time i'm free he wants to know what i think and i want to know what he thinks and and he's a man i mean in between my marriage and this relationship i've had relationships with women as well i've just when i left religion i'm like i am done with your limits nobody gets to place limits on me anymore only the limits that i place on myself so yeah it's been an interesting journey that's really, really interesting to see how vastly different and and part of it is like, you know, for healthy relationships, people have to have open communication, dialogue, and it's an ongoing thing. It's not just a, you know, one time discussion. It's That's a right. it's an ongoing thing and yes. they build trust and you know, respect and honor each other's opinions. And then there's a meeting in the middle where it's like, sometimes you have to make, um, what is that thing? So English is my second language. I'm letting you know that now. Um, But that word, you know, for when you, you have a disagreement on something important, and then you come up with a solution that Yes, partially. You come come halfway. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I know what you mean. English is my first language. I still cannot remember the word, but I know exactly what you mean. Compromise. 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 Right. And it's not saying that like, you know, one person gets everything that they want out of the disagreement. It's Mm -hmm. rather, you know, what that is, is like, one person gets a little bit of something, but not everything. And same mm-hmm. goes for the other person. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and they both have to be okay with it in order for it to work. But it's also when you raise children in an environment like that, you're teaching them how to manage conflict in mm-hmm. a healthy way. Oh. Yeah. And you're modeling that because believe it or not, your children will model you. Oh, it's it's so true and so i grew up in a you know fairly unhealthy home situation never ever heard my parents fight never heard my mother raise her voice ever with four kids and never heard her make an objection even though my dad was quite terrible and he would come in and you know be loud and be uh, abusive in some ways and uh 
we were all just expected to take it. Only he could have an opinion. Only he could express anger. The rest of us could be either happy or sad. Uh, but we couldn't be sad for very long. Uh, and uh, we could never be angry. So then how do you learn to navigate and communicate with each other when your family of origin never modeled that communication? So that's been a whole learning thing. And then also uh, one thing I found out too, that my husband, whom I get along with quite well now, we had a really competitive relationship and I could never figure it out because I didn't want to compete. That's not a partnership. It's not a competition, but that's how he was raised. That's how he was raised. I was like, why does it always feel like they were, were competing? And it made it so hard because then he couldn't support me when I, when I was trying something new that was threatening to him. And, and so now the partnership I have, wow, my partner is so incredibly vastly supportive and just wants to see me succeed at every turn. We'll just do whatever they could do uh, to, to help me realize my own success. And that is incredible to me because I didn't have that support before. That is absolutely powerful. And it's like super interesting too, because my current partner like absolutely supports the things that I do. And oh, like isn't it just having that kind of support like really does mean so much. It means the world yeah. when you have that kind of support, somebody in your corner who's yeah. like cheering you on from the yeah. sidelines. And the yeah. rest of the world may not see it, but we know that they're there. Oh, yeah. It makes, it makes, uh, all the difference. Uh, it may, I feel like um, before I had to dull my shine or dull my sparkle, you know, like that was a big thing for me. I had always been quite musical, but then when I married my husband and he was supposed to be musical. So I stopped playing guitar and stopped doing those things. And oh I God. always loved writing, but he wanted to write. So then I stopped writing and I just edited all his work. Like I really made myself as small as possible. And now I'm like, you know, there's no, there's no limit for me. It feels really good. And, and not only that, but when you say you're a counselor, like, can you explain what a registered professional counselor is? Sure. Yes. I'm in Canada. So that's a Canadian designation. I'm in British Columbia um, and uh, registered professional counselor. That means I did, I've done all my um, schooling and all my uh, supervisory hours um and so now i'm i can call myself a counselor in canada i can call myself a therapist uh in the with clients in the united states um i am a consultant so people contact me um when they have religious trauma and they're trying to work through things now i'm a i'm an atheist um and even a naturalist so i don't even uh i don't see any reason to believe in supernatural things and so I have to let clients know that my supporting them will never involve pointing them back to the Bible or pointing them to uh, supernatural kind of sources that I believe they have everything they need within them. They just need some support. And that's shocking for uh, a lot of people. And so some people, I'm not a good fit for them. If they're still quite religious, then um, they're probably not going to like what I have to say. But there are a lot of religious people right now who are recognizing it's not working for them and they're trying to figure out what that means and so i do work with those people if they are comfortable um, with some of the differences that we have i want to see people healthy and happy and feeling successful in their life and whole and joyful yeah that's yeah. exactly right it's really important and it's also interesting because like sometimes some of the challenges for many who have been, um, they've experienced so much religious trauma. I know that you mentioned on your website, religious trauma syndrome. Um, is there like a specific um, description of that that you sure. may share with us? Yeah. So the, the psychologist who came up with the phrase religious trauma syndrome is my friend and professional mentor, Dr. Marlene Winnell. And she wrote a very important book called Leaving the Fold. And Leaving the Fold is kind of a guidebook for anyone who's leaving a fundamentalist background uh, and is trying to regain their footing and figure out what happened and you know what to do next. Um, and so uh, Dr. Winnell, she talks about it in terms of 
Um, so we have restrictions and losses placed on us when we are members of a fundamentalist group. And then if we do manage to leave that group, whether we're kicked out or we leave on our own or we lose our faith or whatever, then we suffer even more losses as a result of not being in that group anymore, not having those same beliefs, not having that same support, not having that community. It's a real double whammy. And then there are, um, there are things that we have to cope with as a result of those losses. So some of them are uh, physiological things that go along with grief and loss. So we may have trouble sleeping. We may have trouble um, focusing. We may have gastrointestinal uh, troubles. We may be prone to um, addictive type behaviors, may struggle with anger and low self-esteem. There are all these things. So she, it's a, it's like a syndrome. It's kind of a catch-all phrase for all these uh, difficulties and challenges that we might have when, when we were raised uh, or when we spent a long time in a fundamentalist religious group. Now, do you think that, um, you know, for example, so when, when I left my Amish community, um, I was shunned. I was put in the bon and mido. So like that, I believe is also part of like religious trauma syndrome. Wow, like, so it doesn't, absolutely. it's not even just like from like a fundamentalist viewpoint, I think it applies to other groups as well. Absolutely. Yes. But from the, and, yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. you know, in, in different groups, they may even practice different things. They may call it different things, but it's mm -hmm. still ultimately if, you leaving that group results in your family and your community completely shunning you and casting you out oh, yeah. and refusing to have any conversation with you that is not admonishing you to return to the fold. I, I, I mean, that's, it's just another form of shunning. No matter what you call it, shunning yes. by another name is still shunning. Oh yeah. And it's so profoundly, uh, it can just be so shattering and devastating and disorienting. Uh, you were this and now you're that, and now you don't even have anything or anyone to support you over right. here. What are you to do if you're lacking in, in education? And if you don't even know how to get resources um, to help yourself, it's, it's like you're suddenly plunked down in a different country and you don't speak the language and you don't understand anyone. You don't even know how to ask for help. A very, very challenging uh, time. A, a lot of folks are unable to cope with that those profound losses, and they end up going back to the community, even though it's toxic in many ways, uh, or some really struggle uh, in and out of addiction. Uh, some folks end up um, on the street, you know, just for different things that happen, and they don't have the ability that the resources um, to help themselves. So very hard time. That's, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. You are building uh, a strong support network and community for people who need it. I really hope so. I really hope that people, if you're watching this and you're struggling with your faith, I hope you know that there are people out there that will support you in an unjudgmental way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really, really hope so. Um, because another thing that ties into that is so like, you know, some of us, we may not even have words like when we when we leave our um, close insular communities, yeah. um, you know, we are we are often taught this idea that forgiveness means um, silence. Forgiveness equates silence. Once forgiveness is granted, the church has decided that somebody is repentant and forgiveness equates silence. So the thing is, is to me, that's not forgiveness, but that's what some theologies put out there mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. is forgiveness and it even seems to be kind of tied into um, other groups can also ascribe prescribe to that theology mm -hmm. I feel like that's bad theology and in, 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 from the get-go there's no yeah. like so how did your like fundamentalist group how did they define forgiveness well um they took it quite seriously and took it from the Bible. Um, you know, forgive as I have forgiven you is uh, like a commandment to follow. It's um, but what happens a lot of time is it just means enabling the abuse to continue. Um, yeah. So if 
you couldn't in my group that I belong to, you were not supposed to participate in communion uh, if you had any problem with a brother or sister, with any other member of the congregation, you couldn't take the the communion. Um, <clears throat> you were supposed to go to them and try and sort out the problem, you know, either repent or or whatever. Uh, just to try and make peace there, and then you could uh, have communion. Um, and, you know, sometimes when people are very unhealthy or cruel, right, cruel, unhealthy, toxic, um, they will not only abuse one person, they'll abuse repeatedly, they'll abuse multiple people. And if that person is a man, especially, and you're a member of a fundamentalist sect uh, where the patriarchy is firmly entrenched and insisted on, um, you're, you don't even have a voice. Even if you want to go and tell someone what this person is doing, you'll be shushed, uh, you'll be told that didn't happen or told we don't talk about that, uh, there were no witnesses, so it doesn't count. Whatever are the ridiculous and harmful things that people say, uh, and then you're commanded to forgive, which means just to be quiet about it and not to talk about it again because there's a great conspiracy of secrecy in so many of these groups as well. And that just allows the abuser and it also can weaponize forgiveness. Then they can just abuse you again and say, you have to forgive me. You have to forgive me. The Bible says you have to forgive me. So-and-so pastor or whomever said, you must uh, forgive me. So that's where it's weaponized. That's where it's like they can club you over the head with it. And you can just become so numb and, and disassociated from it and just so without hope. So where is there any form of personal autonomy in that kind of situation? Like, let's just say you're a survivor of abuse and that situation occurs. Like, where is there any form of personal autonomy? Is that um, within those within those groups? I don't think so. Autonomy is is not something that's spoken of or that's prized in any way. Obedience is what's prized. Obedience, you know, curiosity and autonomy, those things are essentially beaten out of you, right? Either, you know, either physically or emotionally or your, your caregiver's like, you know, that's not acceptable. Don't ask those questions. Don't dress that way. Don't do those things. Instead, you just have to look and behave like everyone else. So there, there is no autonomy there until we're able to get out of the group or reach outside the group for help. So what happens to the people that are unable to look and act and conform to what they expect them to oh, be? The, the ones who don't conform. Yeah. Um, I think they find themselves uh, on the outside within, you know, to a fairly short amount of uh, time. So the, the churches I belong to, uh, the Pentecost ones, they didn't practice um, shunning per se. But so I think a lot of people, they might leave those fundamentalist churches and move to churches that they call more progressive. You know, maybe they're an LGBTQ affirming church, but they're still, you know, following the Bible as their, uh, as their guidebook or whatever. So, so some of those folks might move into those spaces and those spaces are more likely to demand some sort of accountability, to reach out, to get the police involved, to, to, uh, close off membership to abusive, you know, to an abusive member or whatever. But I don't even know how how often or how likely that would be. And again, we're still even our society promotes this idea of forgiveness. So you know, you're a drunk driver kills your child or something. Well, then the really big thing to do is to go to the prison and forgive or stand up in the court and tell them you forgive them or whatever. Um, highly overrated in my opinion i don't when i'm working with religious trauma clients forgiveness is like the other f word we don't we talk instead in terms of acceptance we have to accept what has transpired whatever was done to us whatever has happened that is a fact that ha that it has taken place and we have to be able to accept that in order to have any forward growth or or right. momentum but that is quite different 
from oh forgiveness because we tend to right. think, oh, forgive and forget. It's just no problem. But some things are not uh, forgivable or um, forgettable, and you actually don't have to. You're allowed to say, this happened, this person did this to me, and so now moving forward in my life, I choose to have no contact with that person. They have no space at my table or in my life. And it may make me sound, you know, bitter or unforgiving, you know, those things. Which I have are... a whole list of words. That's right. Let's, let's talk about the words. <laughs> Some of the words. Let's let's just let's just read off the words. Because mm-hmm. so there's a few things that I have been called because my voice is very clear on where I stand. Mm-hmm. I've been called disobedient, slut, whore, asking for it, pregnant, heathen, abomination discontent, unthankful, unforgiving, bitter, holding on, holding a grudge, too much, too loud, too abrupt, too aggressive, too abrasive, troubled, addict, funny, naffy, and man-hater. And funny and naffy is all like mental problems. Wow. So when you start going down that list and you start like you know, you're, you're talking about being them labeling as disobedient and all mm-hmm. of that. Like, mm-hmm. what do you think the, the, the real, what is a healthier way to look at that? Because for me, I look at it as like, if my voice in speaking out against child sexual assault and the dehumanization of Amish women and children, if my voice is that loud that it causes people to have that much discomfort mm-hmm. i will embrace those terms yes. you will yes. see me embrace those terms yes awesome i love it yes you're right all those all those words that people those labels they want to stick on us uh, are to try and control us and force us back into a box of submission and, <laughs> and we refuse so we are actually humans that are embracing our own autonomy and using our own voice and refusing to take their shit anymore. That's pretty much it. I mean, because why should you take their shit anymore? And not only that, but I have been sitting here for almost 18 years now on on Wednesday. Um, It'll be 18 years that I left my community, right? Um, But I've been sitting here for almost 18 years. I have been hearing the stories from people who have survived Mm-hmm. just unmeasurable amounts of trauma inside of religious institutions and even outside of those institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just, there's, there's no space for us to be quiet. It needs to be, there needs to be a form of accountability. Yes. And the survivors of that, they really need to know that there are therapists out there that will not Yes. promote you must attend church regularly you must attend church at all they need to know that that shouldn't be a, re- a prerequisite to having a healthy um relationship with a therapist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yes and in fact um there is a link i would like to um give your viewers it's called seculartherapy.org it's all one word there seculartherapy.org and um, it's short for the Secular Therapy Project. And what that is, is uh, a group of um, therapists all across um, North America who who are secular. They will not, if you reach out to them and want to have uh, therapy and counseling with them, you're not going to hear anything religious. You're not going to hear any woo type stuff. They're they're they are secular therapists. They're going to be working with um, tried and true methods for helping people. Thank you. Uh, recover from um, trauma, from yes. religious trauma. Yes. And that is so important. Just mm-hmm. so you know that there are resources for you. It's yes. a matter of looking in the right place, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just going back to the whole like forgiveness thing, like, you know, you, you said that it's the bad F word, (laughs) right? So, so would you explain like what specifically makes it the bad F word? Because what does it do to survivors of the trauma that come to you when you 
promote the bad F word to them. Yeah, I think um, it uh, demanding that someone forgive another person. <laughs> you can't you can't demand it. You can't demand it. People could like outwardly conform, but that does not necessarily mean that inwardly anything is going on. People do what they have to do to survive um, some very difficult situations. So it can be very disempowering when we are telling people that they need to forgive. Um, it can seem like it's wiping away the seriousness or invalidating the abuses that they've suffered, the traumas that they have um, suffered. It's, it really comes from a, kind of a very high and mighty like um, place to say to another person, oh, you need to forgive. You have to forgive. That's, it's the opposite of what any therapist or counselor <laughs> should be doing we need to be down there in the trenches uh you know with the people who are suffering and showing them that we see their suffering um but not telling them in any way that they have to that forgiving someone is going to be like a magical pill that's just going to make you feel better i i think religion is disconnected from reality and i think that whole concept of, of forgiveness is going to make everything better is also uh, disconnected from reality. It doesn't allow people to express their authentic feelings or views. Well, and, you know, it's always interesting to me because the religious definition of forgiveness compared to like the dictionary definition of forgiveness, which simply means like holding no ill will towards the person. It, it's so vastly different because when you when you start talking about holding no ill will towards the person, that simply means you hold no ill will, right? It doesn't mean silence. It doesn't mean you never talk about it. And, you know, the truth is, is many people, um, they need to be able to talk about their trauma in yeah. a safe environment where yes. they're not gaslit. They're not put down. Mm -hmm. They're not like silence. They mm -hmm. need that in order to process what happened to them. Yes. Yes. And it can be so, it's so hard when uh, you're a, a member of a high demand group. So a lot of religions and cults, fundamentalist groups are very high demand groups. You, you have no choice but to toe the line in those groups. If you grow up, if you're like second, third, fourth generation in those groups, and you've never seen anyone actually speak up and have a positive outcome to it. And if it's your own parents that are inflicting this uh, abuses and traumas and hardships on you, it is very hard to come to terms with that because we are told that that parental bond is, is uh, you know, just everything. And that it's this beautiful, safe, uh, sacred kind of, and for too many people, it is not. And and religion can be toxic and poisoning to people. And especially when it comes to parental discipline, right? And the the, the high demand group wants to control um, the family, control how much time the parents spend with those kids, or what what they tell the kids, or how they would show love to their children. Um, or withhold love. It's just, it can be very confusing and extra, extra hard for people to come to terms with that. Well, and it's, it's also a fact of like, this has been ingrained because of the generations of trauma that have transpired. Now it yes. can be ingrained inside of like, mm -hmm. your that's, that's all you see from, from your familial unit everywhere yes. you look. Yes. And and you're, it's preached over the pulpit per se. Like we didn't have a preacher, like the man would, the preacher right. would, we, would, we didn't have a pulpit, sorry, we right. had preachers, right? But they would stand in between like the kitchen and the living room and they would have like a corner, right? So that was pretty much their pulpit. But it's preached from there, like your family, this is your family unit. So you, you know, there's this whole um, organized structure of like the church, you know, God and the the males in charge, the mm -hmm. the patriarchy, so like they just they literally, you know, control all of these things, and yeah. 
then where do you even begin to navigate and find a way to be okay with that idea of family? Yeah. Uh, and, and I mean, it drives me crazy. So I'm sure it drives you crazy. The, <laughs> the, the secular world at large, uh, they really romanticize the Amish in particular, the Amish way of life they have. They just think it's like, it's so simple and beautiful and uncomplicated and they don't see the side of it that you saw which is that there there can be a lot of danger in those uh, communities as well and of course that's not going to be featured on some hallmark movie. <laughs> look it drives me wild many of my listeners know that i feel like the romanticization of amish people is part of the problem because yes. it literally results in and I have some. It drives me wild, Izzy. It's a minor description of how I feel about it. (laughs) Because what happens is people watch these movies, like, you know, the movie about the Nickel Mine school shooting. Again, let's talk about the forgiveness part. For me, I mean, you know, they, these people, their children were murdered. When did they have time to even process that? Where were they given space to process that in a healthy way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Rather, it's like all they show is like these people, oh, they're so forgiving. And I'm just like, where, where, in what, how does any human being process that amount of trauma of watching your child be murdered mm-hmm. and come back and like that oh and i mean let's not leave out the part also where christians are forbidden uh to grieve i don't know how many funerals i attended that said we don't mourn as the world mourns we don't grieve as the world grieves because we know we're gonna see our beloved you know so and so again in the hereafter as long as they believe as long as they were in good standing with the church well Um, i'm not in good standing with the church so there's no hope there Right. It's right. Um, yeah. So they then so then they lose their child or they lose their loved one in some horrible way. And then they're not even permitted to grieve adequately. The grief is short circuited. Christians are masters at that, at short circuiting grief. But even when we look at the broader picture as far as the the Bible, and so God says, forgive as I have forgiven you. God in God is a bastard in the Bible, just a just a wicked, uh, you know, capricious. Oh, I'm gonna love you. Oh, I'm gonna kill you. Oh, I'm gonna send a flood. It's gonna kill everybody on the planet. But oh, you have to be, you know, pro-life. It's just it's right. very confusing. And then and then in the New Testament, Jesus comes and dies for everybody's sins, right? Like you want want to go here. And then like one of my favorite verses is like the one about, you know, if any of you were to harm this child, it would be better for you if there were a millstone hung from your neck and thrown into the deepest depth of the sea. So when your children are murdered, did you forget that verse? Does that verse not apply? Are we only cherry picking? Oh, cherry picking, cherry picking, cherry picking. Yes. So, Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. And then the other part of the romanticization is that um, many times when survivors of abuse inside of insular communities that are practically worshipped as this utopian reality where Mm -hmm. nothing can ever go wrong and they are just perfect. They're not perfect. Take them off the pedestal. They're just Mm -hmm. people like the rest of society. And some of them commit horrendous crimes and they walk free. And people take the romanticized view of this culture in in particularly, when you get survivors to, who speak out about the abuse that they encountered, they take that romanticized view and use it to gaslight the survivors. So if somebody who experienced Amish, Anabaptist, or even any kind of insular group, mm-hmm. do not come at them with the comments of like, but you learn to cook and clean and bake oh and sow and garden and, 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 and. And well, they have some good values when you start oh. talking about forgiveness. We can mm-hmm. learn about forgiveness. Don't do that to people. No. You no. have no idea oh, the kind of do. mental trauma you cause them when you do that to people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
makes you almost vomit, doesn't it? Yeah, it's 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 very that's so off-putting and unacceptable. And and we talked about one other part of the work that I do is I host these conferences, the conference on religious trauma. And when people, uh, secular people uh, who've never had set foot in the church or whatever, um, they they are like, oh, but religion isn't traumatizing. Religion is religion is good and healthy. Or then you get people who are religious who say, which my mom says, well, my religion's not traumatizing. I'm like, excuse me, I was traumatized deeply by your religion. Um, but yeah, so people, they just don't get it unless they're in it and unless their eyes are open or have been right. open. Um, and not everybody has the strength and the resiliency to do what you have done and what I have done, which is to right. walk away and rebuild, build a healthy new secular life and community. And it doesn't look the same as, as my old yeah. one did. Um, and sometimes I still yeah. really feel sad. Like sometimes I still grieve some of the, the losses. I loved feeling so secure. Like I had all the answers in Jesus, like Jesus was my cosmic big brother going to take care of me no matter what, take care of all the situations. God is in control. <clears throat> that was so comforting to me. And I don't see that anymore. I don't feel that anymore. So it means I have to step up. I have to make my voice heard, offer my voice in society, see what I can do to change things, bring people's attention to things that they don't want to see and try and make this world better for the next generation that's coming along. Yeah, that's powerful. And, you know, I always say this as I have friends from like all walks and ways of life, you know, and, and the one thing that we all have in common is this, is we all hold similar values and morals and ethics, regardless of whether they're religious or non-religious or they're, you know, where no regardless of where they come from mm. we we hold similar values and so that's like does that make sense like you build a different community it doesn't mean that you automatically have to exclude people based on their <laughs> religious beliefs rather you can connect with people in a safe way if they hold similar morals and values and ethics. Right. And so I don't even use the word morals uh, with my clients because it is so religiously laden. Yeah. That word. I use ethics and values. And one important aspect of leaving our insular communities, our religious communities, is uh, determining what our personal values are now, apart from that group, apart from what the pastor and the our parents told us had to be our values. Actually, I think maybe, you know, obedience isn't something, a value that I prize. Autonomy is a value for me that's really important. So we need to do some values clarification work. And people can go online and just Google values clarification. There are tons of uh, exercises and worksheets that come up. So you can start thinking in terms of, well, what do I value now? And then when you're building your new communities, you can be keeping that in mind. Well, what does this person share those values, just like you said, or Maybe they don't. And so I don't have to allow everyone into my community. I don't have to keep turning the other cheek to abusers and bullies and people I don't like and I don't want to have in my life. I don't have to do that anymore. I did that for 40 years. I don't have to do it anymore. And I won't. And good for you for honoring and respecting yourself and understanding and acknowledging that. Also, thank you for explaining that in such detail I appreciate it because it is true you don't have to allow like people often mistake boundaries as like you know whatever whatever but boundaries are really just it, healthy boundaries yes um, are really just ways that allow you to feel safe and still connect yes. with other people Yes. It is human nature to want to connect with other people, mm -hmm. to feel like you're connected to yeah. other people. And when you build your community, your own community that better um, fits your needs and supports you, you're going to find that those boundaries, the people who belong in your life will respect those boundaries and they yes. will still connect with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
because you do have healthy boundaries. Yes. And when we are in a situation where we feel a big emotional response or reaction to something, that is an indication that a, a violation has occurred of our values or of our boundaries in some way. So it, it's worth taking stock when you feel those big uh, reactions. Um, think about it really think about it and ponder is this a pattern is this does this happen again and again with this person or does this happen to me again and again when i'm in a similar situation when was the first time that i actually ever remember feeling that response come back often it's rooted in our um, childhood but it's important for us to be aware in our bodies as trauma survivors and people who are healing from our traumas uh, how we experience the feelings of trauma in our body. We need to, because we were almost forbidden from feeling those things, from, from mentioning them, from feeling them, acknowledging them. Now it's important for us because our body will give us clues when we're, uh, when we are being activated, our trauma is being activated again. And then another thing is, is when your trauma is activated, what what response do you have? If you become aware of your body having this trauma response, you know, sometimes you are able to literally look at yourself and say, yeah. okay, there's trauma speaking. And mm -hmm. what do you choose to do with that? Because there's always the option of removing yourself from the situation mm -hmm. and processing it. There's mm -hmm. always the option of writing about it. There's the option of asking, finding a safe person to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Like, what other things? Because some people use art, for example. I'm also oh, disobedient yeah. because if you look behind me, there's like some paintings. Yes. I'm pretty sure those are not approved by the bishop. <laughs> I love it. Or my stepfather. Yes. Yes. I, I don't think they approved any of those. I really don't care. But I love those paintings. But that's, mm -hmm. again, like people find different ways to navigate and reprocess that trauma. Yes. Yes. Some people make music, some people sing, some people, mm -hmm. uh, like especially neurodivergent people, they may find specific ways of stimming that help them feel yes. and process that. Yes, exactly. And, and so giving ourselves permission to explore and to be curious, to be warmly curious rather than judgmental. And the judgment part is what was so heaped on us and uh, demanded of us. We were supposed to judge other people also when we were in those uh, high demand uh, religious groups. So giving ourselves permission to feel things and wonder about things and try things. You're talking about art and some people write and dance and, Physical movement can also be super helpful in mm -hmm. processing trauma because it's connecting us to our body. So maybe a certain type of dancing really calls out to you. Maybe it's yoga. Maybe it's running. Um, some people really get very into meditation and that works well for some people and for other people. Meditation sitting there doesn't work well for them because it's too triggering. It reminds them of hours that they had to spend in prayer or chanting or whatever it was. But mm -hmm. you can find other things uh, that still help calm your nervous system and ground you and restore you to a, a place of um, stability. Well, and I always say it's like, you know, when I get triggered, it's like it takes me back there, right? Yes, yes. And does. so, so one of the things that I do like is like, how do I return to the present moment where I'm present, fully present here today? Yeah. yeah. How do you do that for yourself? Do you have different methods that you use? Well, I have my ESA. She is fantastic. Oh, good. You know, she really helps me. She kind of forces me. She does like uh, things that literally like, deep pressure and all of that and that really makes me come back like she's like hello like right now you're going to pay me attention you're going to whew, yes and so then I have a weighted blanket I have some stimming stuff and um you know here's another thing that some people that know me might already know but I always call this my I have an emotional support rock <laughs> I love it <laughs> 
Um, and another thing is, is like sometimes, um, you know, uh, the tips, like the five things of five, four, three, two, one, yes. I don't do it that way because mm -hmm. it doesn't work that way for me. Okay. It all has to be like five things. Like I am here, what's around me and being curious about what's around me and the things that I can feel physically feel right now, right here. Like that's really helpful for me because when you are engaged in your current surroundings, it helps take you away from that which was so traumatizing for you. Mm -hmm. At least it does for me. Mm -hmm. It can. Yeah. Yeah. No, even so working with the clients that I do, I hear a lot of um, pretty horrifying stories. And sometimes I can start to feel overwhelmed by those, just the vicarious trauma of hearing horrible things over and over again. And one thing I do is make sure that I always have a glass of water or a cup of water. Mm -hmm. The minute that that water hits my the back of my throat, uh, I'm back here again. And it's a mm -hmm. reminder that, yep, I'm here. I'm in this seat. The client is in that seat. This is their um, story. You know, it's just something simple for me and helpful that I do. Right. And, you know, that helps you engage with your clients in a better way because you're not taking on their trauma. Rather, you're walking with them. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's And I didn't even, I wasn't aware of um, religious trauma at all, even after I, so I left church uh, left divorce. I say I divorced religion. I divorced my husband. Went back to school to get my counseling designation, uh, and then it was as I was doing all this this studying and educational part of the counseling designation that I started going, oh my god, I I have some trauma. I I think I was traumatized, but I didn't fully equate it with religion, and it was still years before I was able to type into the computer, uh, you know, I, I didn't even know the word deconstruction or deconversion, anything like that. And I didn't know one other person who'd been as devout as I had and who had left and who was living a happy, successful life. I just didn't know. I know and I felt so isolated. So when I found Dr. Winnell and her book, Leaving the Fold, it just opened my world. I suddenly was not isolated. And I think that's what you do uh, with the programs that you do is such a vital resource for people to say, oh, thankfully, you know, I'm not the only person. There are other people. I'm not crazy. I really have been through some very difficult things. And it's possible for me to rebuild my life. Yeah. I'm so sorry that you didn't know anybody that could you could safely like be with that just that breaks my heart i want people mm -hmm. to know that you're not alone if you're struggling with your beliefs about religion you're not alone mm -hmm. you're mm -hmm. so not alone there are many who struggle with religious beliefs i mean i know people who have left religion over their child disciplinary practices yeah uh, mm -hmm. just there can be various reasons why people leave a religious group and mm -hmm. you know either way that person's making a decision about their life and we should honor that and we should respect that and I'm so proud of you are you proud of you because I you am. were able to do that and even though you felt alone like you came back you got yourself you found a way you found a way to connect with people mm -hmm. you're building your own community you're holding mm -hmm. these conferences mm -hmm. you're providing therapy and consulting on religious trauma like yeah. that's pretty powerful it so, feels really good <laughs> that is awesome but are you proud of you i am i am <laughs> so my, my partner makes that point also that uh i you know he says i hope you're proud of yourself you, and I am. yeah absolutely be proud of you because you um, know what what that's another thing that many religions take from you is any accomplishments or goals or anything yeah. you accomplish. It's like taken from you. Yeah. I guess this is another way that uh, we are disobedient, that we are proud of ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Cause religion really does stamp that, 
that out. You're not allowed to take pride, but pride is a very natural response. When we learn to tie our shoes or do something like that, we we do feel proud. That's part of what keeps us going. It assures us that, yes, I can learn. I can grow and take on new tasks and, and develop new aspects of myself. That's important. And for religion to squash that is very unhealthy. Yeah. So we have about five minutes left. Do you have any specific words and tips that you would like to share for people? I would like to also uh, encourage people if they are um, looking for help, maybe they're questioning their religion or questioning their beliefs. There's a really important organization called Recovering from Religion, recoveringfromreligion.org. Uh, and they have a 24-hour, um, seven-day-a-week helpline that's staffed by volunteers, recoveringfromreligion.org. Uh, and they have just a massive group of resources, listing of resources. And they also offer groups all across the United States for people who want to meet together, to get together either by Zoom or in person, who are, in fact, recovering from religion. Thank you. Yes, uh, that's a really important group. Uh, and of course, people can find me at um, divorcing-religion.com. That's my website. And if people are wanting to learn about religious trauma, they can look into my conference. That is at religioustraumaconference.org. Mm -hmm. And all of those links, the Divorcing Religion and Religious Trauma Conference, um, those links are in the description of this video. Thank you. Yes. yes. And one more one more uh, shout out I'd like to give about that. Because I came from a, a sexually repressive background, and I mean, certainly Amish would be quite similar, um, um, so <laughs> coping with the purity culture fallout is another big deal. So I want to encourage your viewers that we're having an online conference for survivors of purity culture. In October, it's called Shameless Sexuality, Life After Purity Culture. And we have a number of sex therapists and psychologists who will be speaking uh, about religious trauma and recovery from purity culture and just how to have some really great sex. So I think that'll be fun. Well, I mean, I was told that, let, let me just, this, this happened like approximately a month before I left the community. Mm -hmm. When you get married, you must do whatever your husband says, whenever your husband wow. says, wow. inside of the bedroom or outside of the bedroom. <laughs> no, thank you. There's no purity culture there, is there now? My goodness. I'm sorry. No. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, <laughs> That's pretty awful. Which is ironically hilarious because I have a wife, not a husband. So there's that. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's another reason. Ourselves. I'm very disobedient. I mean, the red hair really? here. Obviously, no. it's not natural. It. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. I like it. I love mm -hmm. the red hair. I had blue hair for a while. I mean, truthfully, I would encourage people, um, you know, go out, be curious, explore new things, find ways to, to like express yourself in a way that means something to you. Oh, oh you wouldn't believe some of the things I've uh, encouraged my clients to do with um, their purity culture rings. So in the, in the evangelical uh, groups, especially fathers will often give their daughter a ring that symbolizes her virginity and she's not going to take it off till she gets married i'm like how creepy and gross make that into a nipple ring or <laughs> melt it down and use it for something <laughs> else like you you're not bound by any promise uh that you made you were under duress you were a child you weren't an adult and the whole group you know that whole dynamic is just toxic in that way that they're trying to control you and control your sexuality and you don't have to be controlled by anyone except yourself truth oh and that's a good note to end this on i hope you all have a great and fantastic su sunday and we'll see y'all <laughs> next time mm -hmm.